0: Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking to Dr. J.K.R. Nyack about his article Use of Intranasal Submucosal Fillers as a Transient Implant to Alter Upper Airway Aerodynamics Implications for the Assessment of Empty Nose Syndrome. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Medtronic. Medtronic's enabling technologies help you perform sinus and skull based surgery using powered ENT instruments, surgical navigation systems, Systems and balloon sinus surgery tools. Through innovative technology integration, Medtronic brings surgical synergy to your OR, facilitating operative efficiency, value, and outcomes. Visit www.medtronic.com forward slash ENT to learn more.
1: Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Jaykar Nayak from Palo Alto, California. We will be discussing his article, which is currently available online, and entitled "Use of Intranasal Submucosal Fillers as a Transient Implant to Alter Upper Airway Aerodynamics: Implications for the Assessment of Empty Nose Syndrome." Jaykar, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks uh, for the invitation, Tim. Uh, it's great to be here absolutely empty nose syndrome has gotten a lot more research attention i feel like in our field over the last few years and i think that's a credit to you and some others around the country and even around the world who've been working
2: on this very challenging condition i too have been uh, pleasantly shocked at the outpouring of kind of uh, interests abstracts that are submitted to our national meetings now discussion that's uh, openly being had. uh, I think uh, more than just a a few years ago, it was more of a taboo kind of uh, subject and something that we didn't necessarily um, uh, give much credence to or uh, much attention to. So so I agree. I think people say that I might have, um, and my group's uh, efforts may have had something to do with that, but... I think it's also just some of the new, you know, techniques and some of the ways that we can test these patients out have led us to kind of try to put more science and quantitative metrics uh, to some of the research that we're doing. Yeah. And you guys, I think, are doing that very successfully. I get
1: the sense that these patients do a lot of research and they come to find you and others who have specifically done work in this area. And so your experience in seeing this patient population, I think, is greater than the vast majority of our listeners. Certainly, it's greater than my experience. So I'm wondering, could you start just by describing from your perspective, what is
2: empty-nose syndrome? Um, sure, I think uh, everything you said is true. I think these, first of all, these patients do um, just use social media. They um, use uh, Facebook forums and other uh, websites that have been around for years, actually, um, finding each other, uh, finding uh, doctors who are willing to see and treat their possible symptoms. At least help them along the way, and then there's a few of us in the U.S. who are um, uh, interested in uh, actively seeing uh, these patients. I think we all know each other, and also the community of possible patients seeks us out, like you're saying. But MPNO syndrome, to be brief, is, is a controversial condition. I think it's fair to say, but it's associated with the disruption of the sensation of the airflow and altered air conditioning functions and sensory functions in the nose. Um, that afflicts patients, uh, especially those who have had turbinate-related procedures, usually to the inferior turbinate and sometimes to the middle turbinate. And why is it controversial, J. Carr? Well, it's controversial uh, because the nose is a very subjective place. It will always be that way. Very simply, um, some people have severely deviated septums, for example, but, and you'd think that they would complain of nasal obstruction or nasal congestion on that deviated side, but Patients don't many times even know that they have a problem on that side. Um, They just don't perceive an issue. Um, Similarly, if a turbinate is, um, let's say, um, partially or completely resected, something called a, a turbinectomy procedure is performed, um, there's a there's a fair number of patients who would actually not have any issue with that it seems they uh thank their ENT physicians for the procedure they they went in for nasal obstruction now they're less obstructed and less congested they're sleeping better they're breathing better they're improving their activities in life um, and so would you I'm it, um, sorry would you there. hazard would you hazard to
1: guess that that's the majority of patients actually that could sustain a let's say, a total inferior turbinectomy and say that actually that helped me? I'm not advocating this by any means, but do you think more people get away with it than don't get away with it?
2: Well, I mean, uh, from what I've seen, yeah, I I think that what our research is uh, indicating what patients have uh, taught me, and I probably have over 100 and, I've seen over 115 or so consults for specifically just seeing me for empty nose syndrome and whether they have it and can anything be done about it is that a few patients have said immediately after the surgery, after, say, the Doyle splints or the packing material sometimes came out, they sensed something wrong. They couldn't feel the air in their nose. They couldn't sense. They felt immediately that they were suffocating. That's maybe four to five patients in total. Everyone else had said something like between six months and six years, they developed of slow progression of symptoms and a slow decline. I call it the the decline delay. So they had a slow onset of symptoms that are bothersome and they don't put it together necessarily as being related to that distant now, turbinate procedure back when they had it done. So that's why I think it becomes mysterious and also then sometimes they've moved, sometimes they've changed insurance plans, things like that so they don't necessarily go back to the same doctor who performed the initial turbinate or septum septoplasty turbinate procedure. So I don't think we really know what the frequency is of this, the incidence of it is. Um, it's considered rare, I mean one in a thousand patients, one in 750 patients might get this after turbinate procedure, but that's general numbers, but I'd venture to guess that it's actually more. Um, patients, if we really parse them out, and I'd say a good number of my patients actually didn't have turbinates, really had few complaints, they came to see me for something else, I happen to see, uh, the tissue loss in their nose. I then did things like a cotton test, which we can talk about. But then they noticed, well, they didn't have complaints, but they love their nose now that they have more resistance or more material in their nose. So there are, there are patients like that. So again, the spectrum of what patients will complain about or notice even in their nasal cavity after uh, procedures are performed is, is so wide ranging. That's why it's, uh, this controversial condition and one I think that needs much more investigation and study. Gotcha. Now, the vast majority of these patients
1: have, in your experience, the empty nose syndrome is the result of, would you say, over resection of the inferior turbinates
2: primarily? Is
1: that a fair statement?
2: I think, yeah. First, let me just say that there's an entire category that we're not going to probably talk about, which is primary atrophic rhinitis, where patients seem to, especially in less developed countries that uh, an infection-related atrophy of the nasal tissues, including the turbinate, uh, leading to crusting and other general breakdown, no nasal procedure involved. So I actually don't think I've uh, seen a good number of these patients offhand, maybe one or two who have uh, traveled from the Philippines just recently, one who's who's domestic who said he's never traveled to another country, just have crusting, severe crusting and breakdown of tissue in their nose, okay. So with that said, the majority of patients that we See in the u s and North America are following partial to um, uh, partial turbinate loss uh, of to the inferior turbinate and sometimes near total to total inferior turbinate tissue loss uh, from actual i think clipping of the turbinate sometimes um, radio frequency ablation of the turbinate a variety of procedures that can be performed to reduce turbine tissue sometimes lead to excess tissue loss okay
1: and so this patient population then I guess I should say you also see patients who have empty nose syndrome based on resection of other tissues in the nose, other turbinates in the nose, or septal perforation. What would be, other than inferior, yeah, other than inferior turbinates, what else causes
2: empty nose syndrome in your case? Right, so uh, we consider it, well, Stephen Hauser is really the forefront, uh, at the forefront of uh, doing this. He's at Case Western, and he really named, um, uh, several uh, subsets of the empty nose syndrome. The, again, the majority that he sees as well are inferior turbinate related. He's also described something called the empty nose syndrome, ENS of the middle turbinate. And I wasn't sure exactly how to evaluate this until someone just came through my practice who had never had ter- inferior turbinate surgery and only had a middle turbinate resected as part of a uh, procedure to his phenoid sinus, the posterior most sinus. This central turbinate, the middle turbinate, was resected, and he had an abundance of debilitating and and, um, uh, life-altering symptoms that he'd never had before. And so we've done a middle turbinate uh, procedure to help him to try to restore the volume and the bulk of the middle turbinate on him. And that's when I started to believe uh, it because his symptoms and his quality of life have greatly improved, thankfully. And then I don't I think that uh, septal perforation is in the spectrum, per se, of empty nose syndrome. Um, in fact, I have a probably a controversial uh, a theory on some of the importance of the nasal septum, per se, but I think when nasal septum tissue is lost, uh, it can lead to sometimes noisy breathing, such as whistling and things like that, but also sometimes it can increase discomfort because of the vectors of airflow that are flowing through the septal perforation that normally would be flowing in a, in a single direction. So these abnormal and turbulent currents through the septal perf uh, can lead to not only bleeding and crusting, but also can lead to some symptoms that are associated with nasal pain um, and facial pain. So again, uh, uh, MDNO syndrome is not just about uh, – it, it's mostly, I think, about airflow, but also about the sensory difficulties that are go along with altered airflow. Some patients complain of something called a – Paradoxical suffocation. Even though the nose is more open because of the turbinate tissue loss, they say that they're more congested right. and they're suffocating. And that's the classic symptom. But some really don't complain of suffocation, even though they have the same tissue loss as others, but they complain of nasal burning. The dryness is really what bothers them. The throat discomfort is what bothers them. So, yeah. and then suffocation is a, is less uh, of a problem for them. So. I do think it uh, happens, like any disease, uh, to be a spectrum of of symptoms that all of which can be accomplished right now by this term, empty-nose syndrome. So
1: why is it that one patient can have their inferior turbinates, let's say, completely resected and describe a good outcome, and another patient could have their inferior turbinates completely resected and end up with empty-nose syndrome, which is clearly, clearly very impactful, in an adverse way,
2: to their quality of life. What's the difference between those two patients, do you think? So it's it's an outstanding question and one we're trying to answer. Um, I call the population that don't have symptoms but don't have turbinates as a silent empty-nose syndrome patients. And we are studying them because naturally they're the most fascinating group. It seems to me that they um, either are just remembered how congested that they were and realize that there's um, enough airflow going through the nose that they're not obstructed. Maybe they had such difficulty with sleeping because of turbinate congestion that now they're sleeping better. And most of the things that, that were bothersome to them prior surgery are now alleviated and it's okay. And so the, even if they have, let's say, a B on the A through F grading scale, that's better than what they had pre-op. Got the it. other thing is that um, sometimes when you have a total turbinate tissue loss, you're symmetric. At least you have symmetric tissue loss, right? And so yeah. you don't sense any any change. No discrepancy I, I between the two sides. Right, there's no, right exactly. So um, I think of turbinates like wings of a plane. For some people, clipping the wings of a plane leads to the plane completely going awry and the airflow being completely disrupted, and their plane, i.e. their nose, does not function ever again. Right. Whereas other people, you clip the, you clip the wings of a plane, you know, they're fine – not flying at high altitude, but they're they're fine, just sort of coasting along, um, and they don't don't have paralyzing, debilitating symptoms. And then some of those patients, I have um I, I have a bunch of these uh, silent ENS patients, for example, in my practice, and a few of them can convert in a way. You uh, if you test them uh, and place cotton again in their nose. Uh, I have one or two patients who just uh, woke up in my office. They just said, "Oh my gosh, I didn't have any complaints. M- their score on our scoring system was very low, as if they were normal breathers." But then they said, "Don't ever take that cotton out of my nose. This is so incredible how well and open and 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 clear I'm breathing." So I do think that um, that again. There's, there's so many compensatory mechanisms that humans and, and patients uh, can invoke to uh, help with their quality of life, um, and, uh, and I think that that happens in some cases. I think that again, there's there's going to be patients who are just thrilled, and their subjective sense of their breathing is so much better than pre-op. There's going to be some who could be better, but they're happy with that B or a C on the on the on the scale, and there's some who unfortunately get this and get uh, remarkably disabling symptoms uh pain and then uh the the sensitification leads to a sense of anxiety anxiety probably leads to loss of sleep loss of sleep leads to depression and it just is a downward spiral of that mm-hmm. uh, that decline that we uh, were, were were discussing before yes yes in the in the number of patients that i've seen
1: you you'd really describe that what i've seen very Classically, honestly, it really is a, it really is a spiral and how it impacts these individuals is, is very remarkable. So in this study, you have used a a transient resorbable filler that's been used in the larynx before. We have a lot of experience with that in otolaryngology, treating patients with vocal fold disorders of various kinds, and you've used it in the nose primarily to recreate
2: some portion of the interior turbinate, it would appear. Is that fair to say? That's right, yeah. The general idea was that um, we have, I have patients now, um, uh, fortunately, who are coming from over 20 states in the U.S. and then five or six different countries. They're flying in um, not only first to get evaluated and to confirm that they may or may not have this diagnosis. But then they don't want to necessarily leave without something being done. But it's super difficult, as you might imagine, um, uh, to just, if I haven't met them or counseled them on the phone and and done a lot of uh, preoperative counseling and work, to just go to the O.R., And so what we often do is for these patients uh, who, again, come from a distance and either want want to have something done but aren't sure about the next steps uh, in their care, for example, should they proceed with a turbinate implant, and I can tell you about that uh, later, instead of uh, doing something like a cartilage graft or alloderm grafts or other things that are performed out there, can I try something out that gives me a sense of what I might be getting into? So. Just like in laryngology, uh, before you put in a permanent vocal cord or vocal fold filler or um, a bulking agent to uh, restore voice, it, it dawned upon me that we should do the same thing for patients who are either in between in terms of diagnosis. I'm not sure what they have. Mm -hmm. Um, In between in terms of confidence, they're not sure they want to proceed with something because in a way, surgery got them into the situation. Right. And then sometimes just uh, because they, we need to process their insurance and take some time, they want to think about it with their families, but they want to try something out that's similar to an implant. We We dawned upon this filler injection, which lasts on the order of six weeks to to uh, three months in the nasal cavity, and it gives them a sense of what they might feel if they had if they went ahead and went ahead and proceeded with surgery. And sometimes it helps confirm the diagnosis when I have a patient who's kind of in between. Uh, their score isn't perfect on our scoring scale. Their exam isn't perfect uh, when they, when I examine them. So things like that, I think, it's a nice confidence builder for all of us. Yeah, it's a brilliant idea. Are you doing this only on the lateral wall of the nose, or do you do it into the nasal septum at times? Right. So, I mean, I've always felt that uh, – so, first, let me backtrack. The, the, so, the treatment for empty-nose syndrome, when you have tissue loss, is the thought that – Tissue replacement or a reconstruction of areas of the nasal cavity where the tissue has been lost is likely um, uh, a reasonable next solution to helping those patients. So, I know Dr. Hauser, for example, that same uh, physician in, in Cleveland has ing- has done lateral implants uh, into the inferior meatus where the inferior turbinate typically you know is and and the tissue has been lost. But he's also done uh, implants on the nasal floor, nasal septum. Um, for me, I've always felt that we should just replace the normal configuration and contours of the nasal anatomy so i tried to only do this in the uh, for the most part in the inferior meatus so many times when the inferior turbinate has been partially resected or completely resected the inferior meatus is actually quite widely exposed and readily able to be right. accessed with a spinal needle a long spinal needle that uh, we often use in the clinic and an injection material so That's fairly easily able to be accessed, but then when some patients, some special patients who really know their nose, again, these uh, patients are very knowledgeable about what's going on, they've often... Put, place cotton at home in their nose, and they say that if, if I put cotton also in this 12 o'clock position in the nasal vestibule or along the nasal septum in this case, I feel a lot better as well. So in those cases where the patients may have a specific, you know, second uh, site that might be helpful for them, I do inject a second site with the same gel filler. And your study shows improvement
1: in these patients across a variety of outcomes and metrics you didn't restore them to necessarily normal values or norm population values the way you describe it in your manuscript but you did have
2: substantial improvement e- even clinically relevant improvement right so we just um so what we, what we always want to do in our group is Make sure that we're doing something that's uh, logical, that has um, some data-driven behind it, because so much of empty note syndrome, in our opinion, um, you know, is is a little bit voodoo, and that's not going to help us. Uh, we need data, uh, driven management and we need to know what, what's happening in these patients and, and follow them and again put numerics to things. So, uh, so first we came up with this empty nose syndrome six item questionnaire, the ENS 6Q, and those are six, uh, we think very relevant validated questions that help us really track the ENS population over the CRS, or chronic rhinosinusitis population. So um, these patients then uh, all had uh, scores. I think we had 13 to 15 patients in the study. Um, they came to us from various locations in the U.S., and then their their, their general score was, out of a sco- score of 30, which is horrible ENS, um, the average score was about 20, so okay. really bad ENS. For reference, uh, a score of 0 to 5 is normal, okay. with normal breathing. So. Okay. Having a score of anything above eleven is considered empty nose syndrome on our scale. Especially anything above fifteen. But these scores on average were about twenty to twenty to twenty one. And we drop them that score just by doing the injection within a month. Uh we again do online scoring, all this uh highly encrypted um scoring sheets that we send to patients and no one really remembers what circles that they uh, circled typically uh, what the, what answers they circled, so it turns out that uh, they all dropped the average patient dropped to the score of ten, not normal, not in the five zero to five range, but they dropped to ten, so they dropped a significant percentage uh, drop and both for that for those especially for those six questions and uh, we weren 't sure that they would do that but this by doing those numerics, we now understand that. Putting that gel-based filler speed bump in a way in the nose, even if it lasts for a few months, gives them a sense of improvement in their quality of breathing. Their ENS symptoms all drop. And so, and that's just by putting a small swell body in a way in their nose where the turbine tissue used to be. It What's therefore the- suggests Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to ask you, what proportion of those 15
1: patients, do you recall what proportion of them had a minimal clinically important difference? I guess I'm wondering, you know, yes, you took, you took the average, you took the mean from 20 to 10, but what proportion had a, a minimal, an MCID change?
2: Right. No, I think no, I think uh, of the thirteen to fifteen, I think uh we had um, the majority. I think ten to eleven okay. had okay. had that empty so ID. But, uh, but yeah, so right. Two thirds of the patients had an MCID, I that's, which that's, I think that's fair. And then yeah. naturally, for empty nose syndrome, there are some who don't improve um, right. and don't sense that that really helped them. And we included them as well, right? We wanted to make and they sure that we, be, and yeah. they would be and they would be they would probably be terrible. Surgical candidates for something more permanent. That particular That's right. patient population. That's exactly right. So I mean, because you know, when I started this five years ago or so, I didn't know where where to go. I just um, I would do things like I'd examine people. I'd do these things called cotton tests in people, and then. You know, yeah. whatever they said, I would just say – I would believe them, and we'd go. Now – You've got to jump. You <laughs> jump, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> At some point, right. you just got to take the leap of faith. Right. No, that's right. And then I realized, that, you know, there were one or two patients, you know, when you start out, they're like, hmm, I'm not happy. I'd take out the yeah. implant you just put yeah. in. I'm like – but you've passed all my tests at that time and now now what now uh, this isn't this isn't right and then when uh, Andrew Thambu came uh, to join our fellowship and join our program at Stanford he he challenged me to kind of let's make this much more quantitative and he's right and we together uh, came up with these metrics that we've been validated, and now you have to be, you have to, we've added a cotton test in, in a scoring system, and now you have to, therefore, have empty nose syndrome on a certain level, again, above that score of 11 out of 30. You have to improve with a cotton test um, by at least six to seven points. If you aren't, then you might have empty nose syndrome, or you might have cognitive behavioral um, issue that needs to be addressed as well you might have something totally different Um, you might have true sensory loss that can't be explained at this point Um, but that means that uh, at least a surgical procedure at this time is probably not going to benefit you and let's not go down that road and if we're not sure by both of those tests in the office and over time then let's do the gel yeah. And let's see how you're doing. I, um, I mean, I could share stories if, if you want, but there was a, a patient who just came to me from uh, from Israel, and he's already had uh, three nasal procedures, and each one made his breathing worse. Mm. And so then now he's come to the U.S. and and was was seen in uh, I think in, in Southern California for he's going to have a fourth procedure on his nose now a, a revision septorhinoplasty. Uh, procedure and uh, augmentation graphs lateral curl strut graphs and things like that and then one of our rounds uh, i think uh, jeff sue actually at uh at ucla met him and said he should he should come up and be evaluated by me which i appreciate very much and so before that surgery he came up to see me and i must say he wasn't the most compelling when i met him he was he was he was a little bit uh, despondent he was very frustrated with his care unhappy with all aspects of all aspects of his breathing and his sleep his scores were right on the margin on the 12 on my score at a 30 uh cotton test, yeah, he said it may have helped him a little bit he was very uh, resistant to the whole thing but then i took i actually took the cotton ball uh cotton plugs that i placed out of his nose and he suddenly said okay i have to admit that's a lot better when I have resistance to my nose. And then because again, I now wasn't sure, I then recommended that we do these, these gel filler injections. And so we did that the next day because he was from um, out of town. And then he just called. He called within a week and said, this is the best breathing I've had in years. You're describing almost what might become appropriateness criteria
1: for the ma- surgical management of empty noses. I
2: think I think that's totally fair, uh, Tim. You know, so rather
1: than it just being this sort of uh, gray, you know, judgment of the surgeon, which there still is a lot of that involved. I don't mean to discount that, but it's nice to have some quantitative measures and some testing and some things that we can right. do and say these are no, going to right. be the best I mean, patients.
2: These are going to be the most appropriate patients. No, that's right, and and so again, and 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 no one wants to do you know uh, procedures, especially I think in these in a a, a challenging population where the you know the I might be the fourth surgery that that makes him no better, might even make him worse. Yep, and that's just a no win situation for anybody. And and, and instead, now he's so much more confident that this is the way next step for him. I'm more confident that he he can actually improve. He might not get an A, um, but he can improve metrics in his quality of life. And yeah. um, now, now we're planning on um, doing the implant surgery right. based on this speed yeah. bump in the in the gel filler injection. But we had to wait right. three months. I told everyone we had to wait three months until the entire filler material has resorbed before right. we right. proceed on with any other um, yeah. any other procedures. But also, we're making sure we have all the data points. We try to give uh, one week, a one month, and a three month right. questionnaire filled out on every patient. Um, the other, the, as you're alluding to, some of the other uh, surprising things um, that again make me very interested in and kind of passionate about empty nose syndrome is that we try to assess what's going on with the psychological and and cognitive aspects of this syndrome, because again, I think in in to be fair, um, uh, we as a field have have marginalized a little bit of, of uh, the the patients in this group because mm-hmm. they present with so many overlying nasal fixation questions and concerns, but also so so many uh, psych-related concerns that physicians kind of, you know, move them in the, uh, see neurology, see facial yeah. pain, see yeah. uh, psychiatry. So, unexpectedly to us, or, or maybe what we're finding that's becoming more and more uh, the norm is that once patients are breathing more comfortably and breathing more normally, as we uh, show in our paper, that their anxiety scores... Drop From their baseline to um, more normal range, their depression scores really improve as well on a significant level uh, on a numerical significant level so and these then return to baseline once the gel filler has been resorbed so you know in in you know in support of some of the things we're doing is i mean it seems to be that, uh, that I don't know any other psychiatric disease that improves with a nasal filler, right? So it makes me uh, much more supportive of the idea that the turbinoplasty procedure that led to uh, that, that contributed to this or maybe uh, seems to have initiated some of this cascade of symptoms. When it's reversed, potentially, many of the psychiatric parameters, at least to some degree, seem to improve. And now that we're doing these implant procedures on a more permanent basis uh, which a uh, publication which is hopefully coming out soon, we, we are, we're seeing a, a, a parallel to what we're showing with the gel, that a lot of the parameters, right. the, the psychological parameters also seem to improve once the nasal breathing improves so now the skeptical listener
1: is gonna say, okay, your trend in improvement does follow the trend we would expect from a resorbable temporary material being injected. So they have improvement over three months and then that improvement regresses uh, back to where it was. That also follows what we might see in a placebo effect and your study is purely observational without a control group. What do you think about the idea of doing a randomized controlled trial where you randomize patients to either filler or saline injected, something that would resorb quickly, sure. and see if there is a proof
2: that there's a difference in this technique. How does that? W- sure. How does that strike I mean, you? Certainly. And uh, whenever I can, I try to have a matched, uh, randomized control group. Whenever I can. The problem is again, like what I was, what I was introducing before. Patients are coming in. My record is something uh, over 30 surgeries, sometimes or 30. Uh, I take it back. Over 30 physicians. That patients have seen uh, all throughout the country and world sometimes um, before they sometimes come to see me but the the usual is something between four to eight physicians that they've seen so every visit I think to a doctor becomes more and more know high priority um, more and more anxiety provoking is that doctor going to help me Um, is that visit going to be worth my time and again patients are flying in from all over the place to receive our opinion and the opinion of a few other doctors um, again who are trying to treat this this condition therefore it's hard to although although the patients understand the controversy understand the need to do trials and things like that none of them want to be receiving the placebo, right? When I describe it to them, they're like, look, I can't come back for three months. I can't come back for six months um, because of the restrictions in travel and and my job and whatever. So, you know, can you please just make sure that this helps me before I proceed on and plan a surgery potentially? So it's hard to do that unless the patients are local. And I agree. And I do have, thankfully, a bunch of or on maybe not so thankfully, but I do have a fair number of patients who are local, and so now that we have this proof of principle down, I think the next step would be trying to see if we can, I mean, a, in a small subset of patients, probably who are easily easily brought back to the clinic and um, or easily uh, followed, um, who aren't again sometimes paying cash or sometimes uh, traveling from distances, maybe we, we'll try to randomize that group um, because if. They have. We do show the same kind of trend. Then we can later go ahead and inject them again, and they won't be uh, anticipating of the result, or or uh, won't be so so much affected the timing of their care. One last question for you, Jay Carr. Given
1: what you've learned in seeing this patient population, a large number of these patients, what would you, as a surgeon, never do in someone's nose? In an elective procedure. Now, sometimes people need their turbinates removed for a variety of different reasons. There are tumors. There are other disease processes that might necessitate that. But in an elective surgery where you're treating someone for nasal airway obstruction and you're doing septum and turbinate surgery, perhaps you're doing sinus surgery, what would you recommend that our listeners
2: avoid doing in order to avoid empty nose syndrome? Sure. I get this question uh, more and more these days and naturally. My overall teaching to my residents and fellows and those who uh, come to attend uh, talks in various places is that the contour of the turbinate matters. There's a reason that virtually every large animal species I know of has turbinates. Um, Rabbits, mice, uh, rats, dogs, sheep, we humans, uh, we all have turbinates for a reason. So they must be important in overall aerodynamics of the upper airway. So therefore, the inferior turbinates, uh, even though they might get hypertrophied and diseased and cause nasal obstruction, uh, limited procedures to uh, just reduce the size and improve breathing might be needed in, in humans for quality of life. But the contour Clearly matters. So what I try to do is I only do submucosal resections for elective procedures. Make a small incision in the anterior head of the turbinates. Uh, sometimes remove the underlying bone, especially when it's uh, highly ossified or really dense. And then uh, just do a very gentle medial soft tissue leaflet resection of the submucosal dense tissue of the of the inferior turbinate and leave the entire tubular shape intact. Gotcha. Um, the torpedo-like shape of the turbinate should be intact at all times. Sometimes we do these uh, extended procedures called mega-antrostomies or medial maxillectomies, where the central okay. aspect of the turbinate is removed. But yeah. I try to make that a very perpendicular cut with a with a curved beaver blade, um, yeah. uh, a little technical there. But, but the point is that I try to leave as much of the anterior head, the, an- the front part of that turbinate, intact as much as possible. And... The rates of emptiness syndrome I think so far is zero for uh, these turbinate-related uh, resections that are needed for this maxillary sinus in those cases of tumors and, and, and uh, chronic rhinosinusitis that some of us treat. The point is that I think that shape matters. It's just you're getting out the hypertrophy. You're getting out the enlargement of the inferior turbinate uh, but not affecting its overall aerodynamics. Right, and I
1: would add that what I've seen is that that head of the inferior turbinate is almost sacrosanct. If you if you're going to resect a portion of the inferior turbinate, try to spare the head of that inferior turbinate. I agree with you on the endoscopic medial maxillectomy or the megaantrostomies. You can really get away by you can really save the anterior half, certainly the anterior third. Right. of the interior turbinate and I don't see this problem in that patient population.
2: No that's right. I, I, I'm shocked that we that that how effective that procedure is and how how few complaints of nasal breathing that we receive. And also when you think about it, this this article about the subnecosal fillers was essentially bulking up the anterior part of the nose, yeah. right behind the nostril, that's where we yeah. injected, right where yeah. the anterior head sits. And yeah. the values that we had and the, the the numerical values of satisfaction for breathing and loss of anxiety even, loss of a sense of um, a tense feeling that they, they have and dissatisfaction with their breathing really improved just by putting that front speed bump in the uh, sidewalls, but the front sidewalls of the nose. So you
1: have I some the that that's, that's,
2: that's, 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 that's the idea of this, um, and yeah. that's what we're really finding out.
1: You have some beautiful uh, pictures, photographs in your manuscript so that the listeners can uh, log on and visit the website of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. J. Carr's manuscript is there and is currently available online in, in these pictures are in color, and they're it's beautifully illustrated in a live patient, actually. These aren't uh, schematics. These are actually patients that the procedure's occurring in. Well, listen, Jay Carr, we should probably wrap it up there. Everybody's probably made their commute to work by this stage, at least. Let's (laughs) hope so. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: But thank you so much for your work in this very, very challenging clinical problem that affects a lot of people, and I'm sure that they are just so happy to have folks like you and the others around the country and around the world who are who are working on this in their behalf. And so thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your, your research
2: with us, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future, J. Carr. Well, I thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate the trust of the, this. This group of patients. I mean, they they have been through a lot, and the fact that they're willing to come out and receive our our thoughts on this and our evaluation evaluations uh, really means a lot to us. And also, just the increasing positive reception from our community and in, in ENT and rhinology has been greatly appreciated. And so, uh, so thanks to my team for, for, for this this uh, interest in this uh, kind of research. And again, the the readership and the, the group at at IFAR, ARS, and, and other uh, societies uh, who are kind of trying to advance this work with us. So. Uh, it's been a fun journey so far, and um, uh, but I appreciate uh, you reaching out and inviting Great. me to do this podcast with you. Yeah, just keep the keep the journey going. It's a necessary journey, I think.
1: Take, right take care, okay? Take
2: well, care. Thank you so much, Tim. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Minology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.